Welcome to Genesis NFT by NFT's What The Fuck, hosted by me, Jamie Burke. We're doing a retrospective on the history of NFTs, its key moments and people, from Counterparty to Rare Pepes, CryptoPunks and Kitties, from Xcopy to Pack, and Beeple's Record Auction, with the stories from the people inside the hurricane and hear their hopes and fears for its future. These episodes, now over 16 hours have been recorded, will be turned into a single audio documentary released as an NFT time capsule. Follow at NFTs WTF to keep updated on the drop on Twitter. So could you introduce yourself by name or pseudonym and how you describe your role in the NFT ecosystem? Absolutely. My name is Justin Blau, aka Blau. Some people say three Lau, but you can say whatever you want. And I am a musician, DJ, producer who has had an extreme interest in fintech and distributed ledger tech since 2014. So that's interesting. So it was fintech, then crypto that brought you into NFTs. So in college, I studied economics, finance and derivatives and loved derivatives markets of all types, was super interested in platforms, alternative trading systems and stuff like that. And in 2014, I met the Winklevoss twins in Mexico uh, around the time that they were building Gemini. And that's when I was kind of first inspired by Bitcoin as this medium of frictionless value transfer and having custody of your own value was something that was super interesting to me. And so I kind of dove into BTC in 2014 more passively. And then in 17, with the Ethereum boom and with the original ICO boom, I just was absolutely enthralled by the technology and its possibilities. Wow. So you managed to mix fintech and music. Who would have thought? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. People are kind of always surprised that a musician likes fintech, but I think there are a lot of similarities, especially with electronic musicians. We sit in front of our computers all day and program sounds, so it's not too dissimilar from software engineering in the sense of like lifestyle and attitude. And some of my best friends are engineers in tech, whether in crypto or not. So it's a similar mindset. And I think there's mutual fascination between both parties. I think a lot of engineers really enjoy electronic music and a lot of electronic musicians enjoy technology. So it makes sense. Yeah, I guess it does. If you meet somebody in a bar when that's a thing and... You get into a conversation around NFTs. How do you describe what an NFT is or could be and their kind of importance and power? Yeah, I guess I would always go and start by describing an NFT as a digital certificate of authenticity. And to me, that's the quickest way to explain it to somebody. And then I usually go on to use this example of the Instagram verification checkmark as something that is digitally scarce, that everyone holds valuable, and that is a form of verifying someone's identity. In, in a digitally native way. So that verification blue badge is coveted and desired by everyone. And there was a period of time in the past where Instagram allowed third-party users to submit verification requests. I know this because I have a friend that works at Instagram. People would offer thousands and thousands of dollars to get their request submitted and processed. Of course, that was against Instagram's terms of service. And they eliminated the ability of public verification for identity on Instagram. But at the time, you know, a verification check mark was maybe the earliest manifestation and social proof of a digitally scarce asset that was just a badge that really meant something to someone and really had value to the holder. And when I describe that as kind of a form of digital scarcity, a lot of people who are just learning about the NFT space kind of it clicks in their head and they kind of say, oh. That makes sense. And then I usually follow up that example with the typical Mona Lisa example, where you can buy the Mona Lisa on Amazon for $53 if you really wanted it. It's exactly the same as the original. It looks the same, same dimensions, same quality, but it's not the original Mona Lisa. 
So do you really want it? Most people say no. And that's kind of where the conversation devolves into, well, what does it mean to own an official version of a digital asset, of a digital piece of content? Why would that mean something to someone if you could just copy and paste it? And my final kind of thing I like to tell people is to try it. When you own an NFT, when you're a collector, I am both a creator and a collector, it does make you feel something. There's no escaping the natural human emotion of possession, the emotion associated with possessing something, with owning something. And that's kind of how I feel about my CryptoPunk, which I actually only purchased a month ago, but I was looking for four months to find one that meant something to me. And finally, one came on the market that I was excited about, and I instantly purchased it. And I'm so proud to own it today. And that pride in owning something digital is really no different than the pride in owning a watch, like a Rolex, or in owning a pair of Yeezys. There are fake versions, there are real versions, but there is some emotion that human beings derive from owning an official edition of something. We need to send you to more bars. Fortunately, <laughs> you are a DJ, so that kind of works out for us as an outpost, ambassador at the outpost. Let's go back to the blue ticks. I think that's a really important one. You touched upon Instagram's terms of service and why that is a digital asset. It's sought after, but it's not transferable. What's the difference between a digital asset on a platform with terms of service and an NFT? Exactly. So I like to use that example, as you said, to draw people into the concept of something that's digitally scarce. But when you create transferability, liquidity, and secondary markets for digital assets, things get a lot more interesting because now you have a real demand and supply curve for things that are digitally scarce instead of those things being controlled by a central entity. When you think about the entire world of gaming, which is another example I like to use where like skins are digital assets, you might play a game and get really far in the game and earn certain skins, but they're non-transferable to other games. I really do imagine a world in the future where users custody their own digital assets instead of the centralized platform custodying that asset. So in the case of Instagram, like you said, Instagram can change it whenever they want. They could delete your account whenever they want. If you own an NFT that represents an official edition of something, whether it's a gaming skin, a piece of art, or a song, no one can take that from you. It will always exist on the blockchain and has been previously validated by nodes and by miners that verify transactions on a blockchain. And so that's where things get really interesting because it gives these digital assets a life of their own that otherwise couldn't exist on a centralized platform. So you're obviously a very good qualified person to talk about this. You mentioned liquidity and you talk about self-custody. Let's say I am a gaming platform and of course all the major gaming platforms are are looking at this. They might have different opinions on it, but I don't think any of them are not aware of it. And they're sat there and they're thinking about, well, why do I want to allow transferability? Why is liquidity in a secondary market good for me as the issuance platform? Yeah. And the gaming question, especially because I have a lot of friends in the gaming world, gaming has always been a walled garden because it keeps profits within the walled garden. A game wants to control its own rules so as to ensure that they are most profitable. At some point, the players may gravitate towards alternative gaming systems where they have more control of the rules in the ecosystem themselves. Imagine a game where all the players set the rules, not a central party, and all the players can earn from participation. The only way that someone might gravitate towards that alternative gaming world is if the incentives are aligned for the gamer to do so. And at some point, new game developers might create a high-quality decentralized gaming platform that gives users more control 
And thus, those users may gravitate away from centralized platforms that are currently walled gardens that do currently control all the profit. So I do think game developers are sometimes not incentivized to decentralize their in-game assets. But new game developers might use decentralization as a method of competing with these existing platforms because you could give fans the ability to actually earn directly from playing the game. This is where things get really interesting. And I am not an expert on gaming. I would not consider myself the most knowledgeable on the gaming front. But I have had many conversations with people. I think we're a little bit far away from like a fully decentralized game that people are really excited to play. But I think that gamers would prefer to play a game that they can earn directly from than one they pour money into and never see a dollar from, right? And so those incentives may change in the future. Do you think that there is an argument to be made which says, as a platform that allows for transferability of its assets or assets that are created on its platform, that because of that liquidity, it will actually create a premium for them as the creator? Absolutely. I think that we're just beginning to see Not to take too big of a step back, but the ERC-721 protocol does not inherently control a secondary market. The platforms that host those 721 tokens technically control the attribution to the original creator. But there are new Ethereum protocols and layers like 1155 where the game creator may be incentivized for an asset to flow very freely in a secondary market because they would be able to capture a lot of the value from the velocity of that asset. So if an asset changes hands 10 times and they're able to capture 10% each time it changes hands, that's more valuable than a single primary sale that doesn't go anywhere. And I think that developers will begin to realize that having a healthy secondary market and having that liquidity may end up benefiting them in a more profitable way than a closed ecosystem. Right, and of course, because with these new standards, you can integrate in royalties, perpetual royalties on-chain. So that kind of locks in their ability to monetize the full life cycle of that asset. But let's talk about music, right? Because there have been very few artists, creators, who have done audio NFTs well. You're probably one of the only ones on the whole planet. Why is that? What are people getting wrong? What is the secret source to your success? Wow, that's the biggest question of the day. I think it would be good, if you don't mind, for me to go backwards a little bit and then forwards to answer that question as quickly as possible. But when I started, I started exploring digital collectibles in 2017, 2018. They were actually fungible badges, fungible tokens that existed on Stellar. I worked with the Stellar Lumens team on building a mobile wallet for a music festival, where at the festival you could scan QR codes and earn rewards and earn badges that were collectible and that could live in your wallet. And you didn't have to know anything about the blockchain. You literally just scanned things and it worked. And then if you wanted to open up the Stellar Block Explorer, there were three dots in the upper right-hand corner of this app. And you could actually see the hash if you wanted to, the transaction hash. But the idea was to give people custody of these collectibles. We had to deal with securities laws at the time and transferability laws. So you actually couldn't transfer them off the wallet to be compliant. We had to do that back then. But a lot of those laws are changing. And that's really exciting. Or at least the interpretation of those laws are changing. So fast forward from 17 to last summer. I saw Trevor Jones and what Trevor Jones was doing and what Pac was doing. And both were really innovating in manifesting collectibles as art, which is something that I've always loved art, always been a musician, and hadn't really seen many people experimenting with audio collectibles. It was mostly visual. And so inspired by Trevor Jones and Pac, and I always like to tell people that they really started my journey, or I should say they helped me become re-inspired by what was happening in the NFT space. 
in July of last year, I reached out to my art director who was kind of struggling to make a living during COVID, as many creatives were. And I said, dude, why don't we create an alias and make audiovisual NFTs? Something that I had familiarity with from my experiments in 2017, 2018. We started doing that in July and August and did our first release in September. And the theory behind the audio was it was all music that I hadn't released on Spotify that I might never release on Spotify. It was ideas that I was worried about releasing because they might not fit the algorithm. They might not fit the ranking system that traditional streaming services assign. But I still made these ideas, spent lots of time on these ideas, and wanted people to hear them. And we were excited to sell some of our first NFTs for $200. And that was incredible. I was so excited that people wanted to own official editions of audiovisual assets. And it started out where we were doing partial songs. There was actually a file size limit on a lot of platforms for minting. And there were a couple of collectors that really pushed me to think about, well, the looping technology isn't really right yet on media players. NFTs themselves are not the media. That's an important distinction for everyone listening. NFTs point to a piece of media, but they do not contain the media itself. And so looping was a challenge on players. And so we wanted to start out by creating these loops that didn't work because the music would get cut off if it was looping. And we ended up just deciding on doing full songs. And giving people full access to a completed song with completed visual content. And that's when things started to get really interesting this past January, where I did a single release. And the same day I released the song on Spotify, I released a collectible edition of that song on Nifty Gateway. And we just saw a crazy amount of interest, more than I ever expected, in buying an official edition of that song. Fast forward a little bit longer. I then tokenized my album on its three-year anniversary, my first album ever called Ultraviolet, and actually created my own artwork for the visualizers of the music. I learned how to use Adobe After Effects, Slime Sunday helped me, but I really wanted to like create visual representations of audio also with full-length music and create an offering for an album that was really meaningful to me and historic in my career, and we did it on the three-year anniversary. So we had done that, and I did that on my own self-hosted website, and of course, I had no expectation of what would happen. And collectors were willing to pay $11.7 million for those assets. And I was just blown away by this. It was just literally from zero to 100 in five seconds. And I had no idea that was going to happen. Following that release, we did a bunch of unreleased music. Slime Sunday and I did a bunch of unreleased music, NFTs on Nifty Gateway. And we saw similar response, similar positive response, both financially and from the collector community. And really all of those things we're stepping stones to what I think the future holds, which we can talk about now. But before we get into the future, just worth mentioning, I had no expectation of money in creating any of this. Like We were just doing it for fun and for experimentation. And I think the reason why a lot of capital flowed into the space is because crypto-native people are excited to see this change happen in the world. They're excited to see creators getting paid what they deserve to get paid for the work that they do. And all creators, both visual and musical, have been undervalued by social ecosystems for a long time because centralized platforms control the distribution. And now there are platforms in the NFT world that control distribution as well, but at least we have a means of connecting with fans that's more direct than anything we've ever had before. And so, yeah, so that's kind of everything that's happened in the past. But I do think that our strength, or at least my strength, has been really creating full-length songs instead of just little snippets of audio. Let's talk about the future then. Where do you think this is going? And I don't know how much you can talk about it, but I understand you've been asked to work with one of the large agencies that represent a number of creatives on how they approach NFTs. I can speak to most of the things that we're doing. It's not much of a secret. I am working with CAA 
on integrating their roster with this ecosystem in a way that makes sense, right? Like it's easy to make mistakes. It's easy to come into the space and look to make a quick buck. But I think there are also a lot of artists out there, more particularly shouting out Rufus Dussault. I'm a huge fan of Rufus. They are thinking about this super long term and how they're going to apply a lot of these new frameworks to launching their next album. And they're being so creative about it, working with incredible visual artists, thinking super outside the box on what they can do. And that's the kind of behavior we want to see. We want to see creatives being creative and using this technology to manifest new forms of creativity. And that's kind of my role with working with CAA is coaching artists on the right way to approach the space. Same applies for YMU, which is my management company that actually represents me. Also worth mentioning, I'm a client of CAA and a client of YMU. So naturally, I want to help those companies approach this space the right way and integrating their artists. Like Steve Aoki is represented by YMU. And he and I had a lot of conversations last year about what people want to see in a musical NFT. And he's succeeded enormously because I think of those conversations. A lot of people that aren't crypto native just need to understand what's valuable to crypto native people and what might not be. Of course, the audience is expanding to everyone else as well at this point. But finally, where is it going? It's going two ways. It's going in the direction of really special audiovisual experiences that are tokenized, that will always be collectible, but that will be extremely scarce. So one of one full-length songs with beautiful visuals that have a direct tie to the audio that are these true pieces of art that people will want to hold on to for a very long time that are extremely exclusive. And I'm working with a major auction house on curating a collection of musicians and visual artists that really achieve the maximum level of quality in what an audiovisual NFT should look like. And so I'm quite excited about that on the collectible end. But on the other end, where I'm most excited is actually giving fans rights in the music, letting fans participate in the royalties of a song forever, letting them invest in that song and own a piece of it. Now, of course, that's really difficult to do because of regulatory issues. But if you comply with those regulatory issues or with the regulatory framework, it's actually not quite hard. It just means that the NFTs aren't necessarily perfectly transferable in the short term, but they will be in the long term, right? So you have this year lockup restriction when you issue a security. If it is an SNFT, so to speak, a, a non-fungible security token, that non-fungible security token can actually be a piece of art that also represents ownership in master recording rights or rev share for master recording rights in a song. And that's where things get really interesting. And that's what I'm most excited about building at this point. Very cool. Well, Blau, thanks so much for coming on. I think people find both your story very inspiring, but also some very insightful perspectives. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. So I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like, rate, and review. We're going to be dropping two of these a week, so make sure you don't miss a beat. And also follow us on at NFTs WTF to keep updated on the NFT time capsule drop.